Jesus' name, amen. Last time we were together, remember that? That was last Sunday. Can you think back that far? <laughs> last time we were together, I shared an illustration with you. It was an illustration about that, that had to do with working at a bicycle factory. Do you remember that one? Working at the bicycle factory? Well, this morning, let me suggest another job, okay? This is another job that, uh, that you might be interested in. Door-to-door salesperson, right? Yeah, try to contain your excitement. I can see it right now in your faces. Most of you are just ready to jump at the chance to make that career change immediately, aren't you? No, no. I can tell from your faces that you, like me, would rather dig ditches than be a door-to-door salesperson. But there are two things that just might make a difference in terms of your initial assessment or estimation of that job, that kind of work. The first would be what you know about a person's interest in your product, some knowledge of that. And the second would be what you know about the opportunity your product represents. The opportunity your product represents. Let's talk about that second idea for a moment. If you had a revolutionary product, one that could meet the pressing need, the pressing needs for a large segment of the population, and you could offer that product to people at an amazing, ridiculous price, then you might just be more open to the idea of doing that kind of work, right? of being a door-to-door salesperson. In fact, you might even be excited to get out there and start knocking because people would welcome you with open arms once they knew what you had for them. But what about my first suggestion? What do I mean by knowing something, some knowledge about a person's interest in your product? Well, imagine that one of your associates, you, the door-to-door salesperson, imagine that one of your associates had, had called, was able to call all the homes on your target list for that week, called all those homes before you actually went out door-to-door, and of the, let's say, 50 houses you planned to visit, he identified five individuals who explicitly expressed a need for just such a product. And therefore, they were very, very interested in you stopping by. So like the earlier suggestion, knowing that, having that piece of information, it might change how you think about the work, right? It might change your openness to the work. But if your associate who made the calls lost that original list and you had no idea which houses of the 50 houses, which houses were the five who expressed real interest, would that knowledge still encourage you as you went out door to door? Would it encourage you? Would it it embolden you in some sense as you went knocking at all 50 doors? I think it would. I think if you stopped and thought about it, it would do just that. 
So hold on to those ideas, especially that last idea, as we look together at one of the passages from our Bible reading plan this past week. It was Joshua chapter 2, specifically verses 8 through 13. Joshua 2, verses 8 through 13. So let's take a look at it. I'm going to set the, the stage here for this main scene that we're focused on this morning. As I do that, let me remind you that Joshua, the faithful assistant to Moses, who we first met as a young man in the book of Exodus, he was one of only two survivors from that older generation of Israelites, that generation that God judged for their rebellion, for their stubbornness, for their persistent doubts. This same Joshua, after the death of Moses, is now leading God's people into the land that had been promised to Abraham and his descendants. But the people, as we're here in Joshua 2, they haven't entered the land yet. They're camped on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, as someone who was once on the receiving end of such orders, the beginning of chapter 2 describes how Joshua sent spies. Remember Joshua was one of the spies earlier on in the book of Numbers? Joshua then sent spies across the river and into Canaan with this mission according to verse 1. Look at 2.1. Here was the mission. Go view the land, scope it out, especially Jericho. Jericho was probably directly across the river from them, uh, not, not too far away, maybe 20 miles. That same verse tells us that these spies went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, we don't know how they met this woman. We're not given that information in the story. Clearly, given her occupation, it wouldn't have stood out that strange men were going into her home. That seems clear. But somehow, <laughs> word does get out that the strange men going into Rahab's home are maybe uh, stranger than usual. <laughs> In fact, word gets out that these are Israelites, specifically Israelite spies. So when the ruler of the city of Jericho finds out about this, he orders Rahab to bring these men out. What's interesting is that she doesn't comply. She doesn't comply with the ruler of the city's command. She just, she doesn't. Hmm. Instead, she hides these Hebrew men. She hides them on her roof and she lies about them then having left the city. Now, why in the world would this woman, a prostitute, Canaanite, living there in the city of Jericho, why in the world would this woman disobey her king and put herself at risk all for the sake of foreigners? And not just foreigners, foreign spies. Why would she do that? Well, look at verse 8 and listen to the conversations that, that's been preserved for us here. A conversation that took place well over 3,000 years ago. Here's the conversation. We read, before the men laid down, that could mean that before they were going to sleep, or it could mean before she 
hid them under the stalks of flax laid out on her roof, according to verse 6. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melts away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, that news, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will deliver our lives from death. Let's stop there. If we continued reading on, we would simply learn that these men did, in fact, agree to Rahab's request to spare her, to spare her family. And then we would learn about how she subsequently helped them escape from the city, letting them down through her window since, wonderfully, conveniently, her home was actually built into the outer wall of the city. So what's important to highlight? What's important to highlight here in this extremely interesting story? Let me mention three things. Take a look here on the screen. Three things that I think that I'd love to highlight for you. And maybe you already noticed these as you were reading through. Number one, Rahab already possessed a knowledge of the true God. Rahab already possessed a knowledge of the true God. Not only does Rahab know about the parting of the Red Sea that had taken place 40 years earlier. 40 years ago, she she knows about this, right? It's the stuff of legends now, even in the land of Canaan. She is aware of this. But she also knows more. She knows about Israel's more recent victories over the Amorite kingdoms who were on the eastern side, east and south a little ways, those Amorite kingdoms. She's heard about Israel's defeat of those kingdoms. Now, obviously, word would have spread across this whole region over decades, really. It would have spread about news of this large group of people who were out there in the desert, wandering. People probably would have known that these were freed slaves who had left Egypt and they were now camping, wandering, living a nomadic life there south of them in the desert. But now this huge group was on the move. This huge group was coming north. They were conquering local leaders and now they've made camp right across the river from Jericho on the plains of Moab. There they are. It's, it's not surprising that in Rahab's words, the Canaanites' hearts melted. 
And there was no spirit left in any man in light of this. Okay, so Rahab already possessed the knowledge of the true God. But there's more. Take a look. Number two, Rahab also confessed a faith in this true God. Didn't just know. There was belief. There was a a, a trust. Look at this. Rahab herself makes clear in verse 9. All the inhabitants of the land possess this knowledge about Israel and Israel's victories. It was, it was obvious, it was clear, it was known information. But tragically, this knowledge over many decades about the power of God, about his work among the people, this knowledge didn't lead them to surrender to Israel. No one's surrendering. No one's submitting themselves to the God of Israel. But Rahab was different, wasn't she? Did you hear her confession of faith? Verse 9. I know that Yahweh has given you the land. That's a confession of faith, isn't it? Right? If it was just a belief, she could simply say, well, I believe that you've been successful now. But listen, Buster, next week we're going to clobber you guys. We're going to get some of our friends around here. Parasites, the Jebusites, right? We're going to get them together and we're going to take you guys out. No, no, no. She says, I know, I know that Yahweh has given you this land. And even more clearly in verse 11, don't you love this? For Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Do we understand who this woman is who's saying this? This is the servant of many gods. This is a woman raised in the midst of many gods, sometimes collected gods from other cultures. But Baal and Molech and some of these famous villainous, idolatrous, false gods of the Old Testament, she was raised on these. And here she is declaring that Yahweh, He is God. Not just in this patch of land. Not just where the Israelites are camping. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. This is her confession of faith. And as we've seen, that faith is on display in her life. It's not just words. It's actions. She is willing to risk her life for these Hebrew spies. Defying her king. Lying about what's happening in order to protect these men. But it leads, this leads to one final observation about this passage. Take a look. Number three, Rahab acknowledged her need for God's deliverance. We heard this from her, didn't we? Unlike her neighbors there in Jericho, Rahab was not going to fight against Israel. She did not position herself in, in antagonistically towards Israel or the God of Israel. As we saw in chapter 6, as we saw this past week reading in chapter 6, the people of Jericho, when the Israelites eventually crossed the Jordan River and surrounded the city, that city had an entire week to surrender. They did nothing of the sort, did they? They did nothing of the sort. They foolishly trusted in the strength of their fortifications. And we know what happened to those walls, don't we? They came down by the word of God. They fell. They were nothing before the God of Israel. But Rahab is different. She has already surrendered to God. 
Right? She has personally surrendered to God. And she recognizes that she, as a Canaanite woman, she is in the path of God's judgment. And therefore, she is seeking rescue. She is eager for deliverance for herself and her family. Her own words, verse 13. Please deliver our lives from death. And mercifully, God does just that. Now, think about these three points. Think about these three points that you see here. What would this story about Rahab have communicated to the very first readers of Joshua? We know in the final, at least the the form that we have uh, of Joshua, we know that it was written at a point in which Rahab was still alive. We're told that she still lived among the people to this very day says the author. So this is not far, this is not long after these events took place, that there's some final, or at least some, some com- completed form of the book of Joshua, of this story. What does it communicate, though? These details preserved for us in the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. What does it communicate? Well, here's how to answer that question. Take a look. I think it's clear from the story of Rahab that when God tells his people to go, they can rest assured that he's already gone on ahead to prepare the way. Let me say that again. This story of Rahab, I think it's clear from the story that when God tells his people to go, they can rest assured that he's already gone on ahead of them to prepare the way. Think about being in the camp of the Israelites and these spies returning from just having been protected and preserved and then sent out by Rahab. They come back and they tell this story. How does it make you feel? What's your response to hearing this story about Rahab? Man, her testimony and her faith-inspired actions would have been incredibly reassuring to you. Right? Because you're sitting there on the other side and you're thinking, Jericho, this is, Jericho is one of the oldest cities, maybe the oldest city on the face of the planet. Right? Well established, well known, fortified. Right? It's been dug by many, many archaeologists over the years, starting about 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago. They know it had an outer wall, it had an inner wall, it was very, it was a very serious fortifications to this city. You can imagine the Israelites thinking, wow, we've seen what God's done before, but to get in there, how are we going to even do that? And here's this story now about these guys, and it's abundantly clear that God has gone on ahead of you, that he preserved and protected your spies through this woman, and you know that he's going to prepare this path ahead for you no matter what. This reassurance would have been amazing thinking about her testimony, thinking about her faith-inspired actions would have been incredibly encouraging to them. And just as a side note, her faith, Rahab's faith, the actions that sprang from that faith, the actions inspired by her faith, they would later be recorded and talked about in James chapter 2 of the New Testament. James 2.25 her faith would be placed alongside with, alongside of the faith only of one other person in that chapter. And that was the faith of Abraham himself. Abraham and Rahab 
are the two that are mentioned there. So we know what an incredible encouragement that it is of this woman's faith, uh, just legendary. So thinking about this, right, thinking about what we've seen so far, what we've seen in this story, let me ask you this or think about this idea. Joshua 1 describes for us how God called Joshua and his people, God's people, to go, right? Joshua chapter 1, go over the Jordan, go into the land. He told them to go. He called them to go. He reassured them with his presence. I am with you wherever you go. Be strong and courageous. We heard that at the very outset of our time this morning. You read it this past week. He reassured them with his presence. He reassured them in light of all that he commanded them to go. The law of the Lord. Now, those same elements, the call to go, reassurance of his presence with us in light of all that he commanded, that should sound very familiar to us. Those elements should sound very familiar to us. Why is that? Because there was another Joshua. Right? It's obscured by our weird language. I don't know why we do this exactly. But when we read in he and we read in the Hebrew in Joshua one, we read about Yeshua. And when we get to the New Testament, we read about Yeshua. Joshua. Joshua. Listen to this Joshua though in Matthew chapter twenty eight. Listen to the same elements. Go therefore. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those are the words of the second Yeshua. They're the same elements that the first Yeshua heard in Joshua chapter 1. Of course, the first Yeshua was called to destroy the seven nations of the land that God had judged. Unlike the second Yeshua, that is Jesus, who called God's people not to destroy but to disciple all nations. Not to destroy, but to disciple all nations. And Jesus was not the one receiving the charge and not receiving the reassurance of God's presence. He was the one who was issuing the call to go. And he was the one reassuring God's people that he would be with them. Do you see that parallel? That those same elements, those same idea. The book of Hebrews is clear that Joshua could not give them rest. He did not give the people rest. That rest only came through Yeshua, the son of Joseph and Mary, the son of God. That idea is clear here. What's extremely encouraging about that commission in Matthew 28 is that the book of Acts not only goes on to describe how that commission was fulfilled in the first decades of the church, but it also makes clear, the book of Acts does, that when God tells his people to go, they can rest assured that he's already gone on ahead to prepare the way. Yeah, we see it in Joshua chapter 2. We see it in the entire throughout the book of Acts. Same thing over and over again. It's clear throughout. We see this quite explicitly 
Let me give you some examples. We see this quite explicitly at times, like when in Acts chapter 10, an angel appears to Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, and he appears to Cornelius in order to prepare him for a gospel declaration that will come through the apostle Peter. He's preparing him. Less explicitly, we read two chapters before that in Acts chapter 8, how an Ethiopian official who is traveling back to Africa just happened to be reading Isaiah 53, the moment God brought Philip up alongside of his chariots. Coincidence or God going on ahead? More explicitly, we're told this about a Gentile woman named Lydia in Acts 16, 14. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to, be, to what was being said by Paul. There's God at work preparing the way for his word. And when Paul was feeling discouraged in ministry, when he was feeling discouraged in the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18, Jesus reassures him with these words. Take a look. Do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You see, God had gone on ahead. God had prepared a people. These people were talked about by Jesus himself during his ministry. These people were, in John 10.27, we hear about them. They're called his sheep. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, God was already at work in many Corinthian hearts at the very moment Paul was feeling so discouraged. God was already at work, and he had been at work for a very long time, back into <laughs> the foundation of the world. Back into eternity past, he had been at work for this very moment, preparing these individuals to hear and respond to the voice of the shepherd, to the voice of Jesus Christ. That is, preparing them to hear and respond to the announcement of the gospel. That's why Paul, in spite of the opposition he was experiencing in Corinth, must go on speaking and not be silent. Brothers and sisters, I suspect most of us struggle when it comes to sharing the gospel. We struggle, right? We struggle. Maybe I think we probably struggle in the same way for the same reasons, those what we might call the door-to-door salesman reasons. <laughs> we might struggle in that way. Not that I'm specifically talking about door-to-door evangelism here, but just bear with me for the idea, the principles what are those kind of door-to-door salesman reasons? Well, maybe we're uncomfortable or maybe we're afraid because of, of, of the fact that others will view us simply as uninvited, unwanted salespeople. Oh, I don't want to hear this. What are you trying to sell me? What are you trying to, what are you trying to get me 
to do? Are you trying to convert me? What's going on? Or, or maybe we're afraid because others might metaphorically slam the door in our face when they figure this out. That's their estimation of things. Metaphorically slam the door in our face. End a relationship. Make a relationship awkward. Distance himself from us. Or maybe it's because we don't believe we're knowledgeable enough or persuasive enough to really do the job that we've been given to do. Those are all things that a, a person who's a door-to-door salesperson would, would struggle with, right? Oh, man, I knock on that door. You know, as soon as they open it, they're going to see that I'm selling them something. They're going to be like, oh, really? Don't you know I'm doing more important things in here than talking with you? What are you bothering me for? Getting that rejection. Oh, man, I don't want to deal with that rejection. And if, if I, they do give me a hearing, am I going to be able to say what I need to say? Am I going to be able to get it out and let them know, hey, I've got a really nice vacuum cleaner here. Here's a, uh, you know, you really should have this set of encyclopedias. I know you can look everything up on the internet now, but you're, you're, this will really look good on your bookshelf. <laughs> look how nice these look. I don't know what you're selling. But all of those reasons, they're analogous, aren't they, to some of the reasons, some of the things that we struggle with in terms of sharing our faith. But how does that struggle, how does that picture change? How should our estimation change in light of this truth? That God is going ahead of us. That God is going ahead of us. Do you believe God is going ahead of us right now for next weekend at the airfare? Do you believe that he's at work right now preparing the way for our ministry? Do you believe that God has people like Rahab in your life, in your neighborhood, in your workplace at this very moment? These are individuals who already have seeds of knowledge and faith, who are seeking deliverance, who are just waiting for and being prepared for contact with the people of God. Rahab was just waiting. And when she saw those spies, she said, you're Israelites? You're servants of the true God? Oh, get in here. Get in here now. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure you're okay. To make sure you're safe. Not just for their own sake, but because she knew who they represented. Do you believe God has people like that in your life right now? Brother, sister, believer, follower of Jesus. That should give us great reassurance. It should give us great encouragement to know how our God works. Even if we don't have a list identifying who those people are, right? Wouldn't you like that? Well, I could share the, my faith with my neighbors and my coworkers and my family members. I could share my faith in that way. But God, could you just give me maybe a list of, of the ones who would respond positively? <laughs> and then I'll just, I'll just focus on those people, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, you could just have that. I'm like, oh, this person's just, man, Uncle, Uncle Bob, really? And the guy two cubicles down? Great, right? I'm going to go share the word with them, and I know they're going to be like, 
man, why didn't you tell me this sooner? I've been just, man, I've been in a tough spot of my life. I've been searching for hope, searching for purpose. I really needed to hear this message. We don't have a list like that, do we? And so we tell everyone. We speak the word, reassured that God has people for us. That they're out there. The five out of the 50 for the salesperson in the illustration at the outset of the message this morning. You don't know where those five live out of those 50. But you know, as even when you get a door slammed in your face, you know, this next one might be the one that God has for me. That right might be the one who expressed the interest, who really, really wants what I'm bringing to them. Remember the second idea I mentioned at the outset of our time. Your heart for reaching others is also connected to what you know about the opportunity your product represents. Think about that. How you think about this work is connected to this idea, connected to the idea that, that you, have a, you have something that you are bringing. It's, it's what you believe about the opportunity your product represents. Now, bearing with that, that less than ideal word product, <laughs> do we genuinely believe, and I'm asking you this personally, do you believe that Jesus, that the good news about Jesus the good news that announces his unrivaled position, his incomparable redemption, and his immeasurable grace, that that good news represents the greatest opportunity that could ever be offered to any human being. Do you believe that? You've got to, right? If you're schlepping along a vacuum cleaner door to door and you think it's a piece of junk man, you're going to have a really tough time <laughs> making sales. Because somebody's going to say, well, what does it do this? No, nah, it doesn't do that. It's really bad. I'm just going to spare you. Have a nice day. I'm going to go bother your neighbor. You know, that's not what's going to happen. But if you know you've got something that everybody wants and needs, even if they don't know it yet, and it's an incredible deal, <laughs> right, what you're offering them for like what it costs them, what you're offering them. If you truly believe that there's an excitement, there's an enthusiasm about it. And God is calling us to understand that this good news represents the greatest opportunity that could ever be offered to any human being. Eternal life with God given as a free gift. Can you... Tell me a better deal out there, right? Can you tell me a better deal? And yet often we are quicker to try to tell people, hey, Fry's is having a sale on the ham. Or, you know, <laughs> we're trying to tell people, oh, look, we got a goodwill, right? It's dollar, it's dollar day, Thursday, right? <laughs> it's the day, it's the day. I found this. I've, we're, we're quicker to do that a lot of times than we are to say, man, if you want, if you want an amazing opportunity and you've never heard it or understood it before, this is it right here. Let me tell you about what lasts forever with the one who matters most. And it's a free gift. It's already been, it's, it's offered to you. Christ has paid the price. It's stunning, isn't it? It's astonishing. 
in Joshua 2.18, if you're still in Joshua, you could look down to verse, two, eight, to verse 18. Rahab's story also points us to that same redemption, that same opportunity through Jesus Christ. This story points us to that same redemption where the spies, we see in verse 18, what do they instruct her to do in order to mark herself out, in order to save her when the time comes, to deliver her from death like she asked of the spies? They instruct her to tie a scarlet cord in the window of her home, the very window facing out. On the outer wall, the one that they came out of when they escaped the city, they tell her, tie a scarlet cord. What are these guys doing? Why in the world is this happening? It seems like this is their version of blood on the doorposts, right? Now, they're not going to tell her to put blood on the outside of her window, right? That would just, that would just draw un, unwanted attention to her house. <laughs> what are you doing putting blood all over your window on the outside? So what do they tell her? Hang this scarlet. Scarlet, we know from the prophet Isaiah, scarlet as we know from the color. Scarlet or crimson was connected with the idea of red. It was in the same idea. It was connected to the same the, the same idea. So this scarlet is not different than the red, the blood red or the crimson red. They have her hang it in the window. And so if it connects back to the blood on the door frame, the blood on the door posts of the Hebrews during the Passover in Egypt, then we know from the New Testament how that Passover blood pointed us. It still points us to fulfillment in the blood of Jesus. This is that same idea. So by God's grace, Rahab was graciously delivered from death just as she asked. And by that same grace today, we are empowered, brothers and sisters, to declare God's gracious deliverance to those around us. Are people still seeking to be delivered from death? They absolutely are. It animates so much of what we do. It drives so much of what we do. And we don't even always know it or recognize it. And certainly beyond physical death, spiritual death that plagues all people who are looking in all of the wrong places for that which is truly life. What will bring me life? I want to truly live. Friends, that is the same journey that so many people around us are on what they're hungry for and god's empowering us with the same grace do you recognize how the mouths that share these words of life today are mouths that were once muted by sin once muted by sin but now have been opened to praise jesus as savior and lord that's our mouths So when you speak the words of eternal life, you speak as one who has experienced the blessing of eternal life. What does that mean? Do you recognize how God prepared your hearts? I'm not talking in the abstract here about God going on ahead of us to prepare the hearts of someone, somebody out there somewhere at some point. Stop and think about that work in your life. At some point somewhere you were lost. An enemy of God, consigned to the darkness, dead in your trespasses and sins. 
And yet you're here today singing praises to Jesus as Savior and Lord. What does that mean? It means that God prepared the way for the message to come to you. Now, some of you know that. Some of you can see it like, man, I can just see like these three things happen in my life over the span of a few years. And they prepared me to know Christ. They loosened my grip on the control that I sought so desperately. They refashioned my thinking about hope, healing, safety, fullness. They, they, they weaned me away from the world, weaned me off worldly things. These, these events, these conversations, something you read, something you saw, something you had to give up, something you gained, some ch- major life change that God, you could see, was using, preparing the way up to that moment where you heard, for the first time with new ears, the words of eternal life. You see, we know how God works. We know that personally, how God prepares hearts. We know firsthand how God works in this way, how he can work in a life. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. He's doing the very same thing in lives all around us. He wants to persuade you and remind you of that this morning. And like those Israelites east of the Jordan preparing for battle, he wants that fact to reassure us as we go in light of his promises. Amen? We need to be reassured of this. We know the weapons of our warfare, don't we? They're not earthly. They're not earthly. They're mighty, though. They are mighty through Christ, the sword of the Spirit, hope of the gospel. Those are our weapons. Brothers and sisters, will you pray these three prayers in light of this truth today and in the weeks, in the days this week? Look at these three prayers. Would you pray these along with me? This week, Father, deepen my appreciation of the gospel of grace. Prayer number one. Prayer number two, God, help me to go as you've commanded. Prayer number three, Lord, remind me as I go that you've gone ahead of me. Very simple. But if you will write these down, if you will pray these this week, they are simple but powerful reminders of what God's word has revealed to us. Father, deepen my appreciation of the gospel of grace. God, help me to go as you've commanded. And Lord, remind me that as I go, you've gone ahead of me. Joshua may have led a conquest, but Jesus rules over a kingdom. Right? Jesus rules over a kingdom, having already conquered sin and death. May God find us faithful, brothers and sisters, in extending that kingdom as we share the love of Christ, as we share the message of Christ with those around us who, like Rahab once recognized, who are still standing in the path of God's judgment. May God give us eyes to see that, hearts to be broken over that. Spirits empowered to fulfill this through Christ as those who have received so richly of his grace. Would you pray with me? Let's pray for, our, for one another. Pray for ourselves and one another.